Listeners, Happy New Year and welcome back to Hossman FC. I'm Nicola Volpi and on this episode we continued our deep dive series with a very special guest, Seb Stafford Bloor from The Athletic. Seb and I discussed all the intricacies of German football, what makes it so special, and why we both think you should watch it after its winter break. It was great to be joined by one of my favorite writers of the last few years, and the whole team here at Hussman FC is very excited to bring you much more content like this in 2024. As always, if you like what you hear, remember to give us a rating and review, as well as to check out our flagship podcast, Lost in Postulation, which I host together with Neil Fitzpatrick. And now, without further ado, my interview with Seb Stafford Bloor. Enjoy. Listeners, welcome back. We talk a lot about the Premier League, Champions League, La Liga, and yes, even Serie A on this podcast. But we rarely give enough attention to what I believe is the most misunderstood and perhaps underrated of the big European leagues, the German Bundesliga. Joining me today to dive into the world of German football is European football expert Seb Stafford-Bloor. Seb is a content strategist at Tifo Football and writer for The Athletic, on top of being one of my personal favorite football writers of recent years. Seb, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, Seb. Uh, was just uh, rereading some of your work earlier today on uh, on Heidenheim and on uh, last year's Stadt Derby, so uh, that really... Uh, it got the juices flowing for me. Uh, big, uh, big Bundesliga vibes at the moment, and I think we like to to discuss a lot the narrative of football on this podcast. And I'd like to bust a few of those narratives uh, about the Bundesliga with you. Um, the first one, Seb, and at the risk of annoying you straight off the bat, <laughs> why why should I or our listeners watch a league where the same team wins every year? and hoards nearly all the best players? I suppose because the story of the Bundesliga is not just what happens at its summit. I think one of the really interesting features of the last couple of years, especially, is that the middle class and the clubs in peril have kind of interchanged. And so wherever you look in German football, there's usually a story and there's usually a place in which you can get interested. I mean, obviously, Nicola, that, that's without getting involved in the kind of the match day experience. Um, you see, because I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the lead on that one and, and just say that I think for as a sort of a a tool by which people can argue on Twitter, X, mm-hmm. sorry, whatever, um, <laughs> that thing that isn't as good as it used to be. Right. Um, I think no, you, you you know if you want soap opera and storylines and and that kind of stuff in, in of that tone, then um, people go to the Premier League. I think if you want depth of experience and culture, uh, I don't know of a better league than the Bundesliga, and not just because I live in Germany. Um, it's a it's an incredibly engrossing place, and who wins it every season is obviously very, very important, not least mm. by Munich, of course, and by Leverkusen this year. But I think there's German football stands for so much. Like if you, you don't have to become a fan of a team, but it, there are so many interests and causes represented within it. And I, I don't just mean the usual suspects. Like, a, you know, not every club is a little St. Pauli, for instance. Mm. I think that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Dortmund against Brissy Munch and Gladbach, uh, one of the road derbies. And, um, you know, obviously down one end of the stadium, Dortmund fans are protesting about the potential investment in the DFB, which we saw wave through a few weeks later. The other end, 
Gladbach Ultras are protesting about the lack of paper tickets in the game now. Like, silly examples, right? But <laughs> right. these are important things to people and that there is a cause to German football that I think you don't, you don't always find elsewhere. Like, I think, I think in, particularly in the Premier League, and I'm not picking on the Premier League, I'm from England, so, you know, um, cards on the table. But I think a lot of the time, football gets condensed down to did you win or did you lose? And mm-hmm. that's really it. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people increasingly are looking for a bit more than that. And the Bundesliga is a great place for it. Absolutely. And you talk about, you know, factors there which which set the Bundesliga apart and potentially, and today, at the time of recording, basically, a couple hours ago, came out uh, a new ECJ ruling about <laughs> the Super League, for example, right? Which is a whole can of worms in itself. And I'd love to have you on another podcast to, to potentially discuss that. That's but... a Netflix series, Nicola. That's not a podcast. <laughs> no, <laughs> we can do that true. together, but it's like, we need about 10 episodes. <laughs> Multi-season even. And um, what I remember from that, when it blew up, you know, a couple of years ago, was there was a noteworthy point that no Bundesliga sides were involved in that. And there was a lot of discussion around, oh, this is because of this 50 plus one rule in, in Germany mm-hmm. where, you know, to, to one extent or another, the fans have 50 plus one, I believe it is, of the voting rights uh, at, a, at a club's assembly, right? Um, is there... Am I getting that right? Because I think it's it's something quite delicate, unique to German football, but we might misunderstand it. Because I saw in the aftermath of that, you saw even, you know, what, Chelsea supporters, AC Milan supporters, uh, like myself, even calling, we need a 50 plus one rule also yeah. in our leagues to stop this. Are we understanding that correctly? Yeah. So for people who don't know 50 plus one or haven't been up close with it, what it means is um, traditionally a lot of German football clubs were originally just divisions within sports clubs these have basketball and hockey and you know uh judo whatever else everything you can imagine um in the late 90s as a sort of measure to guard against declining competitiveness in european football because obviously you know big media deals started to be struck in england and italian football always had a lot of wealth german football granted their clubs the right to form little plc offshoots from their clubs so they were separate entities but with a provision that the members of the club the paying membership retained 50% of um, the voting rights plus one so you could never for instance have a situation where someone uh, bought a German football club outright in the way that for instance um, the uh, public investment fund of Saudi Arabia has with Newcastle United or Roman Abramovich did with Chelsea or mm-hmm. you know countless other examples which means that with these big topics, so with big moves and big ideological changes, you can't have a situation which I think is very prevalent in a lot of football uh, all over the world where an owner decides to do something and the fans can make a lot of noise, but they don't actually have much agency. Whereas in Germany, you annoy the fans and you annoy enough of them, you're getting voted out, whether you're, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Aki Vatska at Dortmund or uh, Herbert Heiner at Bayern Munich. You know, it's a, um, it's democracy because you, you you have an accountability there which prevents a German club could never uh, move into a German super, into a global super league just because um, any movement by uh, a supervisory board uh, would result in you know chaos as you can imagine um, and it's very reassuring I think obviously uh, some people argue that there's a downside to it which is the um, the limit on investment German football clubs are not very attractive for big sort of halo investment type uh, people 
um, which uh, I personally think is a good thing, but others say prevents German clubs from ascending to the very top of European football, uh, other than Bayern Munich. Mm. Um, but it does help you sleep at night a little bit. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a whether the important point to make, though, is that German football is relatively young. So uh, the Bundesliga only began in 1963. Right. German football and society has a great fear of commercialism. So these things are inbuilt. Also, because we're in 2023, nearly 2024 now, and German football in this particular era, with a lot of people, you know, in their sort of 20s, have never known anything other than 50 plus one. You can't, I don't think, just take that to different countries and expect to kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube. So right. I, I, it's not a yes or a no as to whether that's the answer elsewhere. It's just that's an observation about German football culture and the way the game is viewed over here. Like. I was I was speaking to my wife the other day. We were talking about some of the so the attitude towards RB Leipzig in Germany. Now it's important to note that RB Leipzig do not have an exemption from fifty plus one. They've simply been assembled in a way which allows them to artificially conform with fifty plus mm-hmm. one. But my point was that whilst an English football fan would come over here and think, well, what's the problem, right? Because they've grown <laughs> up with things like state ownership and right. RB Leipzig seems like not such a big deal, but that represents the different in different levels of sensitivity within the culture and so there are material contrasts right and that was my next question is and I'm, it's very layered there's a lot of nuance to it but how do we reconcile you know that 50 plus 1 rule the pride that's taken in it with yeah. a red bull leipzig a hoffenheim potentially with even a bayern who has uh, board members from volkswagen and adidas well, I would I would certainly draw a distinction between Bayern Munich and those clubs. So Bayern Munich are very successful and very, very wealthy and commercially very dominant, but there mm. is a level of organic success within that. And Bayern Munich are successful because they have, well, for want of a much longer conversation, Bayern Munich are one of the smartest clubs in the world. And their success has certainly uh, accelerated their growth over the past decade, clearly, but mm-hmm. um, they're not a construct in the same sense. Um, how we deal with that well um, I don't know really because Jeremy doesn't really deal with it I think I was at Union Berlin against Evi Leipzig earlier in the season and the Union Ultras began the game with a period of silence which is a kind of protest against artificiality within the game Hoffenheim um, I mean it's not quite as fierce as it is for Leipzig but um, the protest against their own Dima Hopp um, mm. have been um, pretty vicious over the years. Actually, interestingly, TSG have, have just become, um, have just conformed with, uh, retro- retroactively conformed with uh, the 50 plus one rule because, um, won't bore you, but they're, they're now technically on the other side of the fence, even though clearly they've they've profited from it. So I don't know. It's, it, it's an ongoing tension and it's an ongoing uh, division. There is no reconciling um, and there is no, clear way for those clubs to kind of conform with the other clubs just because they are so different there 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 is no comparison to make and the the other aspect when we talk about the bundesliga something that has has always interested me about it and you alluded to it earlier is that off pitch aspect the atmosphere in stadiums even watching on tv you feel a certain buzz during a Bundesliga game a kind of hybrid between you know a continental european tifos but 
Premier League style pack stadiums. Is that, you know, something that's that's very much touted? Because for me, it's a mega attraction. If I compare, you know, for example, to uh, watching uh, a mid-level match in Serie A on a, on a Saturday or a Bundesliga one, just that buzz on the TV already veers me towards the Bundesliga. 100%. And there are a few reasons for that. Like, the most obvious is that Bundesliga football is affordable for people. Now, I, I've never, I have no experience at all of watching games in Serie A. Um, my own experience comes in the Premier League or a little bit in Holland. So those are the ones I have, uh, compare it to. I think because you make it affordable, uh, you change the expectation about it. So I think a Bundesliga match day is a bit more of a, an experience a day out. It's not quite as focused on the result. So one of the observations I made when I when I first got here a couple of years ago was that the attitude of the ultras and the environment within the stadium, the atmosphere, doesn't really change if a team is getting hammered or whether they're winning. Like I, there are certain there's certain choreography to the way ultras behave within a, within a stadium, and be that expressed through pyro or choreo or whatever else, or just general messaging. Um, these are kind of subplots to the day's football, and so what you're left with is and you talk about the buzz. The experience of going kind of exists independently of the match in a way mm. that allows it to be to be its own sort of unique experience. Very few Bundesliga match days are the same. Now, look, it, it would be a lie to say that every football stadium in Germany is like the Westfalen Stadium or Deutsche Bank Park or any of the other big stadiums because there are some which don't sell out. Like a Wolfsburg is, you know, on a bad day, mm-hmm. Wolfsburg have thousands of empty seats, for instance. Um, Union Berlin is clearly very different to watching a game in Stuttgart or Munich. Um, both have charms to them. Like Union is one of my favorite places in the division because it's small and packed. And you know, yeah. Point being is that you have this that sort of expression in the stadium, allied with what is a very big federal country, where regionally a lot of the sort of the the local interests and and local uh, issues of importance are different, and so going to games and watching games on TV, for instance, I think a lot of that is visible, palpable through the screen. And Mm. um, there are some technical reasons like the um, DFL have uh, invested a lot of money in making sure that kind of their broadcasting quality and their accompanying apps and all that kind of stuff is is really, really high so that you can kind of um, gain back a little bit of the ground that you surrender commercially to like the Premier League and um, just the the raw ability just to sign players. So there are a lot of different reasons, but it's, it's a... It's kind of wonderful. And I know I sound a little bit like a Bundesliga propagandist, but it's uh, I, I spent almost 10 years covering the Premier League as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. the difference is night and day uh, in terms of uh, what I've found since I got here. I, I, I love it very deeply, which is a very strange thing to say after just three years and not what I was expecting right. at all. But it's, um, yeah, what you see on television is is a kind of a two-dimensional version of what exists in real life. It's a fabulous experience. And would you say, like, overall, that is a more sustainable way forward that others can look at as a model? Or or do you think this is so ingrained in German culture, you, you can't really copy and paste this, this approach or aspects of it elsewhere? I don't think you can transplant it. Or you, I don't think you can export it to countries who already know a different way. Right. I think, again, it's the obvious comparison, but... If you create a culture, if you allow a culture to develop where all that matters is being able to spend, is 
is is a, is our fans who believe that you need to have 100 million pound players in every position and um the real art and, and joy in the game is found in the transfer market and following you know transfer reporters and that kind of stuff it's not going to be for you because it, i i'd almost argue that you have fans of that kind of stuff and then you have fans of the game and the culture and they're kind of two separate products that you're lusting after i'm not passing right. a judgment i'm just observing a difference um so no I, I don't think so and i i think that point about what german fans are used to and what they tolerate is very very important because the sensitivities in german football are, are from an outside perspective are quite interesting to observe so you, I, I made a joke about the kind of the paper ticket issue earlier um but like i think that's kind of representative of, of sort of how uh uh, I don't want to say militant because that sounds negative. I, I, I mean right. this in a really positive way, but German football fans are on guard against change. So, for instance, a couple of years ago, there was a move to um, insert fixtures into a Monday evening slot. And that's where, do you remember the tennis ball protest? You might, might have seen yeah. that on the Right. So that's where that came from. And in Germany, um, in England, you grumble about that, right? You have a bit of a moan, you say right. something snide on Twitter and you move on. In Germany, you just don't have it. it just, it's just outright rejection. And so I think you can't reconcile those two attitudes uh, because, yeah, it, it, it's so different. But then this is the point, Nicola. It, different football cultures should have these contrasts and they should breed different things and they should offer different things to different people. I I, I strongly support that. So, yeah, like and, and actually, because that's the case, you allow places like Germany to... to have that unique appeal i suppose so no i don't think it could work elsewhere that's fair uh and certainly uh certainly not in the premier league i think that's <laughs> that's not even being too cynical to say that but you know i think something that i've noticed uh, a lot in the in the past few years is a lot of the discourse around football ends up being around did your club make a surplus that they can reinvest during a transfer window or not? Did yeah, uh, wh where yeah. is the the coefficient? What what money are you getting from qualifying for the Champions League? And it's refreshing to have some realities where that's maybe not the center of attention. I think so. So my wife and I live in Hamburg, and we've got two Zweiter Bundesliga teams here. One is St. Pauli, mm -hmm. who everybody knows. The other is, the other is Hartwell. Um, Hamburg Sports Arain, who it still um, rings uh, strange to hear them uh, referred to as a Zweite Bundesliga team. It, it sure does, because yeah. for people who don't know, it's an enormous German football club who previously a European Cup winner back in the eighties, um, multi-time German champion, and <clears throat> they sell fifty-seven thousand tickets in the second division in the Volkspark. It, it, it's an incredible thing to see, and mm -hmm. and I think that's always. You know, because I'm not emotionally invested in their plight. I'm a I'm a well wisher of both Hamburg football teams because my home city. I want them both to do well, which makes right. me a heretic, I think, or would have me kicked out of Hamburg eventually. <laughs> I'm sure, um, but I, I can't see that happening in other places. And I think, and also, Hamburg's failure is not just you know a relegation. It's been over a decade's worth of haplessness in a lot yeah. of instances, and some terrible failures and some really embarrassing moments and that kind of stuff. Um, but then I think this is this embodies this idea that um, it's not just about net spends and you know going on the fan channel and having a practice rant afterwards and who can who can have the biggest tantrum on social media because it's these things don't exist they haven't it's almost like they haven't been discovered or you know anyone who tries to behave like that I think would be um, 
ostracized pretty quickly. I would have, I would have thought. Yeah. Well, the purity of of the Bundesliga, and I want to now zoom into this season. We're now at the winter break, famous German winter break uh, of of a month that some Premier League managers dream of for their teams. And <laughs> at the moment, sitting first place, Bayer Leverkusen still undefeated with uh, with yep. a slight little cushion over uh, over Bayern Munich in second place. Um, I know you followed them closely in the preseason that you, you traveled to, to Austria to, to see them train under Xabi Alonso. And do we consider them at this stage legitimate title contenders that will get the job done? Or do we still have uh, memories of 2001 and Bayern Neverkusen? <laughs> well, they're certainly contenders. Uh, they are clearly the best team in Germany at the moment. I think some of the question marks about this relate to how they emotionally deal with the pressure and the situation and the kind of the gathering noise because they have a bit of a gap it's four points at the moment but Bayern do have a game in hand so that will probably be one point at the end of the um, right you know by the time well soon after the beginning of January uh, soon after the beginning of the resumption um, but I, I'm hopeful because I, I you, you mentioned I, I did go down to the training camp in the summer and spend some time with them I got the chance to talk to their managing director for sports Simon Rolfs who very one of those very very smart executives who you can talk to about the game and who's very interesting and erudite and I asked him sort of what the the ambition was this summer because traditionally Leverkusen are the club of the developing talent they they mm. buy players who they can ship on at a profit in a few years time so you know their classic is a is a kind of Edmund Tapsoba for instance or a Musa Diaby who was recently sold to to Did Aston like- Villa and he said what we needed to do was rebalance the chemistry of our dressing room so we needed a different level or a different type of professional in there so in comes Granite Jacker in comes Alex Grimaldo in comes Jonas Hoffman who are leaders and really influential people and I think actually we've already seen the sort of the benefits of this so there have been a couple of times this season where Leverkusen have had little stumbles so I, I think of mainly of uh, the game in Munich against Bayern Munich when they conceded that terrible set-piece goal to Harry Kane within a few minutes. And you just thought, yeah. all this build-up, and then you you give that goal away? Right. It's is, is terrible. But, 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 they rebalance. They, uh, are, they're able to uh, manage themselves on the pitch. And at the end of that game, if that game goes on another 10 minutes, they win. Like They played Bayern off their own pitch. And that, I, I haven't seen that for a long, long time. And so, whilst there are clearly challenges ahead, they've got to go to Leipzig in January. They have to uh, host Bayern in uh, in Leverkusen. They also have to go to Dortmund, who are not terrific at the moment, but will presumably get a lot better. They have to entertain Stuttgart, who are a great story in, in their own right. Mm-hmm. The indicators so far are really positive. I think they get that. Uh, I just think they're better. I think they are. Uh, I think also, with the exception maybe of Kane. Uh, at the moment, player for player, they're superior, which is not something I expected to be saying. But uh, look at the evidence. There's nothing to suggest that there's a there's a collapse yet. Doesn't mean there isn't going to be one, but there's nothing right. to suggest it in the water at the moment. Right. And depth and versatility as well, right? I mean, I think last yeah. night at the time of recording, all of a sudden, Patrick Schick gets a start again and he scores a hat trick, a real German hat trick, by the way, because it was all in one half, <laughs> as, I, yeah. as I've yeah. learned. Um, so <laughs> I think there's there's a lot there. What I want to ask you there is 
what ingredients has Chabi Alonso brought to the mix? And and the reason I, I want to dive into that is because I want to focus on Chabi Alonso at Bayer Leverkusen and not at oh let's already shoe him in for the for the Madrid job mm-hmm. after Carletto leaves to to Brazil next summer. What like let's dive into the job he's doing there. Yeah, really really interesting. So a couple of elements to this, Nicola. The first of which is that I I've seen Leverkusen training. And I've seen the way Alonso handles himself there. Uh, he and his staff are incredibly aggressive and they are there's a real productive tension to the way that training sessions are run and uh, the different rhythms are, are sort of governed. So there's that. I, I know people think of him as quite a laid back figure and sort of, you know, because of the way he used to play. And, and, that's, right. and that's not an unreasonable thing to say, but uh, as, a, as a head coach, completely different. Um, he, he, he can almost come across as quite highly strung in a, in a good way mm. the other thing is that the technical coaching now a couple of things about Leverkusen which have, have got a little bit lost in the uh, deserved praise for Alonso's work the first of which is that that is an incredibly talented group of players so if you think about what you have uh, you have well, we, you mentioned Patrick Schick, who's come back from long-term injury and uh, scored a hat-trick uh, last night, which is terrific to see. But Victor Boniface has been one of the, the stories of the season. And mm-hmm. he's a great story generally, given what he's been through over the past sort of three or four years with his injuries and death of his mother and depression, all these things. And it's great to see him do well. But yeah. you've got two really good forwards in there. Um, Adam Herzog is in there as well, if you if you needed a you know, supporting player. Um, but... Florian Verts now playing the best football of his career after long-term injury looks absolutely world-class already. Either side on the on in the two different wing-back slots, Jeremy Fringpong is probably the most uh, most improved wing-back in European football, who is just incredibly difficult to deal with one-on-one because he's so quick, but also technically so gifted, and his decision-making has improved so much. Alex Grimaldo, who I want to say probably has the highest standard of goal. Uh, at the moment in the whole of European football everyone he scores is just <laughs> Absolutely. terrific great ball striker has a habit of scoring goals in important moments into that mix Jacker, Palacios uh, you got a little bit of, of cover in there from some other players Robert Andrich is a great uh, like a, 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 a veteran Bundesliga player uh, who, under, who isn't ruffled by anything and that's an incredible luxury to have and then you've got that collection of defenders who you're either you're either leaving one of Kasunu, Tapsoba, or Hincapier on the bench. It's incredible, incredible. And Lucas Radetzky, the goalkeeper, is. Uh, I, I previously, I didn't think you could win anything with him. I didn't think he was good enough. Okay. But that's been proven completely wrong. He, he's been outstanding this season, and uh, may you know he agrees with me. Look very silly. So you have these um, these players and these tools. What Alonso has been able to do is. Um, they move the ball in a way in which a lot of these players are put in one-on-one situations. So what you're, one of the Leverkusen's most common patterns is you'll see the ball moved vertically quickly into a situation in which you've got five players moving forward at the same time. So both wing-backs, Wurtz, Boniface, maybe Hoffman too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're able to harness all of that power, and give these players the opportunity and the space to express themselves in one-on-one situations. How many teams in Germany can deal with that? It's not even Bayern. You don't have the individual matchups to deal with it. And so that's been a great success. And surrounding this is that, and I think it's a really underrated aspect of, of Alonso's management, is that 
a lot of these players admire him. A lot of these players grew up watching him. A lot of these right. players saw him win European Cups. And that is an incredibly powerful thing. And I know that like people like you and I, we see that clip of him spraying a 30-yard ball around in training and be like, oh, look at that. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. It affects players in the same way. This guy is still the best passer in the whole team, and he's it's incredible. older than me. He's older than me, right? <laughs> and it matters. And and uh, I remember, I remember speaking to Granite Jacker um, in the summer. He was at the training camp and and asked why, given how things had gone at Arsenal in his final season when he'd he'd had that kind of renaissance, why it was that he chosen to move and why obviously he he, he grew up in in gladbach uh, not grew up but he, he moved there when he's very young right so why 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 back to germany why back to to leverkusen he said alonso and this, these things matter because when you have that standing when you have a player like that that is a rare opportunity particularly for younger players to to gravitate towards and um the whole thing as a as a collective is just a great success story at the moment Sounds like it. And uh, a lot is made about Alonso's alleged notebook that he kept from all the great managers he played for, right? He played for Benitez, he played for, for Ancelotti, he played for, for Mourinho, for Pep, right? Which one of these mm-hmm. do you see more in, in his approach? If that's not too cliche to ask. That's a really good question. I I don't know. I, I think... You can certainly see stylistically. You can certainly see Guardiola isms in mm-hmm. his football. Clearly, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't see much Mourinho. I think probably a good thing for for sure. Like I, I don't right. think that approach would suit this team. It's right. really interesting because obviously in the in the in that semi final in the Europa League last season, when emotionally they were derailed by what was actually quite an inferior Roma team on the night they yeah. didn't play them off the pitch but just they short circuited because they got so frustrated and antagonized by the antics and, you know um, Ancelotti is an interesting one because I think there's sort of in this, uh, not quite in the same way but there's that reverence isn't there Ancelotti always has has the hearts of his players because there is that respect and I, I think mm-hmm. that's a really important aspect of this too um, I think there are similarities with Mikel Arteta Clearly, they grew up in the same part of the world and they were childhood friends and all those kind of things. But in terms right. of that that tension and that intensity that, that I spoke of, um, I think there are some similarities there. So, yeah, But then at the same time, I think he's, he's very much forging his own reputation and his own path. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a kind of a cookie cutter um, uh, replicant of anybody. Um, he's um, and, and also, we're just finding out about him. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that... Because the Bundesliga, Bundesliga is quite a transition-heavy league by nature, so this is really the start point for his career. He's not going to be here forever, and we're going to find out about his coaching tendencies in other divisions. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to label him as anything yet, um, just because I'm enjoying the finding out. I'm enjoying watching, you know, what he's being able to build, and I also feel like this season even representative of what he's capable of because he's still so young and still so inexperienced and uh you know i mean can you imagine potentially what this guy might be able to do with with real madrid's financial power behind him for instance or liverpool's or whoever else right that's not that's not me beginning a managerial transfer rumor (laughs) that's just uh off the top of my head stuff i have no idea (laughs) no no uh no whispers from uh from ornstein on that one then um but um 
and I think the the other aspect there is we've seen a lot of recently retired heroes of clubs, if you will, be thrown into the deep end managing their club. It's been good to see with Xabi Alonso, I think, no coincidence either, his development, right? First at Real Sociedad B, now mm-hmm. at a at a project, right? Being able to kind of oversee a project and and not have, you know, that day-to-day pressure necessarily at the levels of when Lampard took the Chelsea job the first time, right? Or the second time for that matter. Um, so I think that's been great. Um, having said that, he's got uh, Bayern Munich hot on his heels, right? And uh, wanted to talk a bit about Bayern. Uh, Kane, mm. that's the big story so far, right? You alluded to it. He's hit the ground running. Uh, 25 goals, I believe, uh, at this point in the season. Yeah. Right. How is he enjoying Germany? What's the What's the vibe there? Personally, I don't know. I don't know how he's enjoying. I mean, I, I would also draw a distinction between Germany and Bavaria, as um, Bavarian friends of mine mm. always say. I'm not German. I'm Bavarian. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's down in the south. I live all the way up in the north, so I couldn't possibly comment. I think his adapt his adaption generally is a is a under discussed aspect of this because he arrived at the club with no prior relationship with any of these players and no experience of playing abroad he adjusted to everything in a very short space of time at the end of a very tedious very long long standing transfer rumor transfer saga sorry and was able to forge chemistries out of almost thin air and I think what's been so impressive about Kane is not necessarily the goals, even though they, they're such a huge part of this. We knew he could do that. I think outside of Tottenham fans, and I'm a Spurs fan, so I've seen this for many, many years. Harry Kane is not a goal scorer. Um, that's not his label. He is uh, the uh, premier complete forward in world football. And um, his playmaking is of the highest standard and his all-round contribution is as well. And that's been that's been the feature. I remember talking to Jamal Musiala in the mix zone after Munich won in Dortmund a few weeks ago, about a month ago, actually. And I asked him, is he better than you thought he was? And he's like, yeah, because like a lot of people, he said, well, we knew about the goal scoring. Didn't know that you'd see him in midfield. Like, you didn't know mm-hmm. that you'd see him like um, playing that big switch that he likes. Or uh, It's strange to me because I watched this for so long. I covered it when he right. was at Spurs and, and you saw his evolution. Um, at Bayern, who, this is not a classic Bayern team. This is not a stable one in midfield. It's not particularly good defensively. Manuel Neuer has been out for most of the season. So, like, the wingbacks, fullbacks, not quite as dominant as they have been in decent, recent seasons. So, Kane's performance level has kind of survived those challenges. And, and that's, that's because of what he's able to do outside of the penalty box. And so, I think that's the essence of his transition into Germany, into German football, sorry. It's been, it's been very interesting, and I, I, I've enjoyed watching German people and, and Bayern Munich fans gravitate towards him and embrace him because I think what you get with Kane is, well, what you see is what you get. That, that he's not an effective person. He's not a, mm. he's not a superstar. He's not. There's not an awful lot of ego. He is just kind of a normal guy with a family who trains hard, plays games, scores goals, and goes home, and he's also had little funny moments like he he's doing the vice first and mustard with thomas muller and he's wearing right. you know uh leberhosen and and so he's trying you know and he can look awkward and and it's a little bit uncomfortable but i think people appreciate the effort and that matters 
to Bavarians, I think, evidently. Um, and, you know, that, that, that mix zone when I spoke to Miziala, uh, while that was happening, Harry Kane walked past. He'd scored a hat trick that night. Um, uh, sorry, I should say try to pack because they were right. Sorry, <laughs> Germans. Um, <laughs> German pedantry is a different level, man. Um, and uh, he just had his foot, he had his match ball in a plastic bag. And I was like, Is that, is that a match ball? He's like, Yeah, you know, like, yeah. And, and okay, so there's not a strutting superstar who, and that kind of act probably wouldn't fit in particularly well at Bayern Munich. So it's been an all round success in every right. Way. A great fit all around. And I think that the player that kind of sacrifices himself for the team, right? I, we watch a lot of Spurs in our house. My wife and, and my father-in-law are, are Spurs fans, uh, which made last year's uh, round of 16 in Champions League, where we went to both legs uh, together, quite interesting. Um, but that's what always impressed me about Kane, right? Is that, yes, he's the striker. He's he's the leader of the attack, but he's tracking back. He's starting everything you know uh from the back and i think you know it's it's great to see that that's a fit with byron um and how how is tuchel being seen by the fan base at the moment i know they a bit of what you could say a shaky start they won the the league in the at the last possible second last year which was uh more dortmund dropping it than them winning it um is that you know seen as and i know with a grain of salt because at a big club you have five bad results and, and you can be out, but is he seen as somebody the club can build with, you know, for, for a long time? Or is he a patch? Five, try one bad result. <laughs> I, I don't think it's that he's a patch. I just don't think that Thomas Tuchel spends five years anywhere. Like, mm. I don't think he's a long-term head coach and I don't think that really that's the expectation. I think, I don't think there's a sort of, I, I think there have been outbursts of negativity. I think, it's been a little bit difficult sometimes to deal with his grouchiness. Like he, he can be a bit grumpy, Thomas Tuchel. I mean, he can, he can be a bit volatile. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think there's a sense that he hasn't quite had the tools yet to do the things that, or, or to to kind of to create the team that he wants to. A lot of talk has been about this sort of holding six, the fabled holding six that he must have in January. Um, I think once that player comes in, then he'll be. Then he'll be uh, he'll receive a little bit more scrutiny. I also think sort of obviously the other the alternative the the flip side to the Leverkusen story is what happens to the guy who is uh, not in a chair when the music stops for Bayern Munich. Do you mm. want to be the guy that that breaks the sequence? Do you want to be that head coach? Um, and that looks like a very real possibility. So I think that um, without a very significant impact on the season's Champions League, like you run to a semi final or a final, and without winning the Bundesliga um, the Pokal has already gone they've been eliminated clearly um, and there have yeah. been a few results like that I mean, we're, only, we're only two weeks um, removed from that awful performance in Eintracht against Eintracht sorry in Frankfurt um, and there is this suggestion still that it's not the team isn't built on particularly stable ground they remain really vulnerable to transitions they I remember they, the Super Cup against RB Leipzig when they got taken apart really um by leipzig's speed um yeah and kind of just how accurate that sort of the vertical football was and that hasn't i, I don't necessarily think that's been cured and, and i think a lot of people would would say the same so <clears throat> jury out 
still. I don't think anybody is, is I don't think that there are any um, kind of zealots pro or against, but um, then that's kind of, that describes the situation itself, doesn't it? Because it's not hugely convincing yet. And if you take, if you take the 100 million euro center forward out of the equation, that doesn't look great either. Um, I mean, it's difficult to, to, to take Kane's goals away from this situation, but um, they've allowed uh, Munich, I think, to look a lot better than they really are. Understandable. And the other club I want to discuss uh, from this table, the surprise package, uh, I think, of the season, uh, VfB Stuttgart. Uh, when I yeah. think of Stuttgart, I think of that great <clears throat> 2007 season with Mario Gomez and Kakao up front, a young Sami Khedira getting getting some minutes somewhere in the Thomas middle. Thomas Hitchersberger in that team. Yeah, he's now he's one of the directors at he the was, club. Yeah, like he, he was, was. He was okay. a sporting director, and uh, yeah. I'm not sure what his role is now. I'm not sure what his exact job title is. But still involved. I think so. I'd have to check okay. that. Okay. But yeah, Stuttgart, they're there. They're with 16 matches, 34 points, third place uh, at the moment. What's going right there? Hey, they've been... Um, what, a, what a coaching job, I think, first of all. Mm. So <clears throat> a bit of background. Beginning of the year, they were really heading for relegation. Sebastian Hernes, who had um, previously managed uh, TSG Hoffenheim, um, and in the sort of the um, uh, Bayern Munich youth setup, he turned them from like a kind of a cowering counter-attacking team into this, uh, frankly, a work of art. I know that a lot of the attention has been sort of directed towards um, Gerasi's goals and more lately Dennis Undau's goals, but the quality of the football and the build-up and the, the contributions of like Milo and Furek and actually Silas playing extremely well, Angelo Stila in midfield. I, it's it's one of the, the most dramatic turnarounds I've seen anywhere. I was at the relegation playoff back in, I think it was either May or June, when they dismantled Haasvau and that was kind of the beginning of, of you know, their, their resurgence in many ways mm-hmm. because... Um, it was incredible that they were even in that game because they were so obviously too good to be in there. It was kind of a quirk of the of the table that they managed to, to finish in that spot. Um, ever since, they they look terrific. And actually, because Dortmund have been so poor, they look like a favourite to qualify for the Champions League. So to go from the brink of the Zweite Bundesliga to the Champions League in 12 months is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And they, they're probably my favourite team to watch. Leverkusen aside, I, I just think it's... And it, Added to which, like Stuttgart traditionally an enormous club, playing yeah. in an extremely loud stadium with one of the best terraces in uh, in Germany, Cannstatt Club. Uh, it's a great place to watch football. Uh, it certainly will be once the, the renovations have been um, completed totally. It's a bit dusty in there at the moment, or it was mm. last time I was there. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a great story, and it's it's so it's important. The Bundesliga needs these big clubs, big powerful sides. Um, to well, we've we've, we've had too many Schalkers, right? Too right. many Schalkers, too, too many Hamburgs, too many. Uh, I'm not sure I want to describe Hertha Berlin as a big club, really, but you know, but yeah, they come from a big place. They have yeah. they have had financial power, and they've been bad, um, slightly better in the last few weeks. But you, the point stands: you need your Stuttgarts because you just do. You need competition and you need a variety within the division, and they've they've been a delight, a real breath of fresh air. It's great to see. And 
I also wanted to discuss Dortmund. Uh, Dortmund yeah. coming to the end of last season, finding themselves with a the chance to win the title. We know how that went. I've seen kind of two Dortmunds this season. I've seen the Dortmund in the Champions League, uh, where I followed that that group quite closely. Of course, it was fascinating group. I I saw them dismantle AC Milan the second time around yeah. they played. A lot of just the pace, great young players and everything. But that's not really translated to their league play, it seems. What, what, what drives kind of that discrepancy? Or is it just, you know, an inconsistent team that's uh, building? Good question. I think... I think the problem stems from the fact that they, they lack a real tactical identity. So a lot of people grew up with the idea of Dortmund as being either being a counterpresser. So, mm. you know, being a system team who perform above the sum of their parts. Whereas now they are the sum of their parts. They are uh, not necessarily this season, but in previous years, Dortmund's success has been tied to the performances of Jude Bellingham or Alec Holland or Jaden Sancho before him. And, a little bit Julian Brandt this season. I just don't think there's the depth of talent, personally. I think there's a lot of players there just who are good enough to be where Dortmund are now and to spring a surprise in a Champions League group like that where you're facing um, a complacent superpower in PSG, um, an AC Milan side and a little bit of a downswing, and a Newcastle team who are just a bit naive, who aren't quite as good perhaps right. as they think they are. Um, right. And who also were saying that Newcastle have had terrible injury difficulties this season. So that's another challenge. And BVRB have enough ability, whether it's a, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about brands, but um, Felix Metro was um, you know pretty pretty important in both those games and Marcel Sabah. So, so caliber of player that can hurt you. And yet <clears throat> domestically, there's no identity. There's no, like, when I go and watch a Dortmund game, I don't know what I'm about to see. Like, I walk into the stadium and I know what the stadium will be, but the product on the pitch is, is it lacks that, <clears throat> it lacks the, the system, yes, but it also lacks that, sing, that single player who you think, I'm going to go and watch that young guy. You know, the, the player that Dortmund always seemed to have, and we've mentioned some of them, mm. but go back and think of, like, a, an Usman Dembele or a, a Pierre-Emerick Pierre Aubameyang or... Lewandowski, Goethe, you go go back and back and back. Forever. You know, forever, right. Uh, doesn't There isn't that player now. Maybe Bino Gittins, maybe. I don't I don't know yet. I, I, I love watching him. I think he's really talented. Right. Uh, yeah. But, but um, not the same yet. Uh, and so without these issues, without these factors, I, I think it's really difficult to have a grasp on who they are. And week to week, I think, whereas I think if you were... If you were a, 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 an opposing player lining up to face Dortmund 10 years ago, you'd dread it, wouldn't you? You'd think, oh, this is going to be awful. Like, Exhausting. It's going to be so right? tiring. Right, exactly. You're going to be, you're just going to be trampled by the counter press, the energy, the work rate, the intensity. You, you just dread it. Now you think, hmm, can get at them. Can get at them. Absolutely get yeah. at them. They, I, I saw them play uh, Colin last night. They were absolutely dreadful. And Kloner are themselves circling the drain and the yeah. risk of losing their head coach. They're going to continue with Eden Terzic, BVB for now. Um, for me, uh, interesting decision, but I, I think there needs to be quite a few different changes in different areas. And I, I don't just mean coaching wise, I, I think the recruiting hasn't quite been good enough. I don't think that's un unfair. Um, I don't think the talent is quite there to kind of certainly you would you would not 
compare them player for player with the amount of ability that Alonso has at Leverkusen I would say Stuttgart are more talented now mm. um, I would also say RB Leipzig although they've had a few missteps recently RB Leipzig are a much more powerful team potentially um, you look at sort of even just at centre forward position uh, RB Leipzig have Sesco and Appenda and only one of them tends to play at the same time and you know BVB Hilaire Makoku Mm, full Krug yeah good players right on their day I'm not afraid of them in the same way mm-hmm. um, and yeah so I, I think there needs to be a little bit of a reset and a kind of a reimagining of what it is to be Borussia Dortmund if that's not too abstract I, I love the club I love, love watching games go there but it's not as it should be right now Yeah, and it is a club where, like you said, there was always a clear sense of identity, not just, you know, on the yellow wall in the stands, but on the pitch, the way they played, and that transferred from manager to manager. It wasn't just what Mm -hmm. Klopp did in his time. It's also what we saw with even when Bellingham and, and Holland were in the squad in the last year. So definitely something uh, something missing, and I think that the Bundesliga as a whole misses something from not having a strong Bifelbe. Um Now, I know what you really wanted to talk about on this podcast and I save time for is the Zweite Bundesliga um, so I wanted to to dive a bit into the chaos there because when I look at this table and I see Heisvau, I see Hertha, I see Hanover, I see Nuremberg even, uh, Schalke Kaiserslautern, I'm like well that could be you know mid-table if not to, to the European positions of uh, 2005 in the Bundesliga yeah. How many sleeping giants do we have here, and what's what's the issue? I know we can do the Netflix series on on Heisvau as well, but what's <laughs> what's going on here? That so many fallen giants, if you will, are just loitering in the in the Zweite Bundesliga. Well, each has their own story, and some of the, the teams that we haven't mentioned: uh, Fortuna Düsseldorf, massive mm-hmm. club; Kaiserslautern, yeah. massive club; Nuremberg, again. Like everyone has their own tale of woe, Nicola. Um, clearly, I think one of the problems with it is that it's an incredibly difficult league to get out of and it's also over time I think I know Hamburger experience with this at the moment you go from considering yourself a sleeping giant to just a Zweider Bundesliga club with a big crowd and I think that's kind of where Hamburg are right now I also think that um, we've seen a, a, a recently that teams that come down, and I suppose Werder Bremen were an exception to this, but mm-hmm. teams that co- who go down always seem to to arrive with the same complacency, like, I go straight back up, right? Didn't happen. Happened the first time with Schalke, won't happen this season. Schalke are a mess. Right. Won't happen with her to Berlin. Maybe, maybe if they went on a really you know long run. They, they are getting better, but there's still a long way to go. Arminia Bielefeld came down from the Esther Bundesliga and now in the Dreide Bundesliga. They, were, they fell straight through Praise. It, yeah. Praise. and I think there's a real leveling aspect to it because it's there are a lot of difficult places to play not in the kind of tough place to go on a Tuesday night sense I don't mean like that I mean you know <laughs> I just mean that there's a lot of really interesting coaches there's a lot of really still very good players I think there's a lot of very inhospitable environments so I went uh, back in November to, to meet Frank Schmidt who took Heidenheim well took Heidenheim from the fifth division to the Bundesliga and uh, they're currently in ninth which is absolutely extraordinary unbelievable um, 
you know, if you don't know Frank Schmidt's story, do please look it up because it, he's he's a wonderful guy to a really inspirational person to spend time with. And what he's achieved is a miracle. Uh, he'd also be the first to say that it's kind of a group effort there um, amongst a lot of people that have been at the club for a long time. And for many of those years, weren't paid anything at all, really, or were volunteers. But you get people like that who um, have ideas and who understand how to coach players and also understand how to communicate with players and enrapture them. And, and I think in Heidenheim's case, um, if you think about, forget the last day in Regensburg when they, they had their amazing promotion, think about sort of, um, I mean, they, they were budget-wise, they were kind of middle of the pack in the Zweider Bundesliga. And there's this kind of crazy um, man-marking system and this kind of counter-pressing uh, game. And the big thing for Frank Schmidt is work rate. You, you, when you, if you ever meet him, he, he talks about not distance covered, but sprints. This is big thing as to, mm. you know, effort. And he's completely uncompromising in his style of play. So when you have someone like that, that creates the environment for complacent, imperfect, flawed, poorly built squads to be embarrassed, frankly. And mm. there's a lot of it. Not every, there, there aren't there isn't a Heidenheim around every corner. It's not what I'm saying. But um, if you look, for instance, at Horsham Kiel this year, really, really well coached team with a kind of a veteran 35 year old Lewis Holtby in central midfield playing a role that no one ever thought that he could, even when he was in his 20s. Right. And there is one of those everywhere. Like there is, there are, and, and frankly, another of the problems, Nicola, is that you have two automatic spots in. Uh, automatic promotion spots at the top of the division. The third place is not a promotion spot. It's a playoff spot. And right. I I love the, the concept of the game. It's very dramatic. I, I think the game is grossly unfair as a con, as an idea. I just think you can't... Um, you think they should go up directly, the yeah, third place? I think so, yeah. because I think mobility is important. I also, I think... Um, I don't. It's not necessarily about the opportunity to go up. I don't believe in rewarding the bad team from above with the opportunity to get themselves out of trouble. Um, and to play potentially one of the biggest games of the year. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And like you, you have situations potentially. Hamburg, not a good example of this, even though they've been in the last two. But you shouldn't have a situation, for instance, where like Kiel came um, unstuck in this game a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And they had a great season. They got um, completely screwed by uh, the coronavirus pandemic and had to play a million games in about a week and were exhausted and just got obliterated. Mm-hmm. I don't... Like, I don't think it's fair, um, but it's another obstacle to kind of that some of these bigger clubs have to face. Um, it's a great league. And there are other people that sort of they, um, they describe as one of the best leagues in the world. They're not really being ironic. Uh, I sometimes right. do a podcast with a guy called um, Matt Carrigan, who's from Australia, mm-hmm. who gets up to watch every match day from Australia and loves it. And I understand why. It's not a quirky thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's such an egalitarian league. And mm. it's so often proved that just having depth of resources just doesn't matter. Right. And I spoke, when I first got to Hamburg, I went to meet Jonas Bolt, who is sporting, I'm not sure what his job title is now, but he was, he's, he's Hamburg's sporting director. We were talking about squad building and how um, one, of the, one of the things you need in a Hamburg player is the kind of the emotional resilience to deal with the fact that everyone you want to play every single match day wants to embarrass you because mm-hmm. you're the European Cup winner and even though you're nowhere near that standard anymore, there's no Keegan, there's no Horst Hubisch, there's, there's no Beckenbauer, right? Like, 
it doesn't matter. They want to win in the Volkspark because it's it's a it's a thing, and understandably so. And I think that yes, that's specifically about Hamburg, but I think that runs through the division with so many teams, like where they go to Veltins Arena to play Schalke. Like if you're a Holsten Kiel player, you want to go there and embarrass them, right? Big time. Um, exactly. So um, if you're a Elfsburg, Elfsburg. <laughs> I spoke from like a, you know, a tiny time t- in front of 10,000 people. They're, they're practically a village of a place, right? Uh, and it's, it's just a, it's a, you can't explain it. I think that's kind of part of the magic, but they're all these weird little factors. And it's just a, a very curious division. If you were like, a, if like you were a, I don't know, a professional gambler, you just never touch it as a competition. You just, you just would never go anywhere near it because no one could predict anything with any confidence. <laughs> and uh, do you think we could uh, see a start derby in the Bundesliga next season I think St. Pauli will go up um, I think they're the best coach team in the division mm-hmm. I think Fabian Herzler has done brilliant things um, had a little bit of a drop off towards the end of the um, the, the first half of the season but they finished they got reached the Winterpause Vind- unbeaten Um mm-hmm. And I think I, I think they will go up. Uh, Hamburg, I don't know. I, I I I don't think they're really they're not powerful enough. They they have they have all these players and they they have a lot of talent. Uh, I think Tim Volter is an interesting coach. I think he is a zealot tactically. I think he sees the game in a, in a way which he doesn't compromise enough. He doesn't his team is defensively not secure enough. Uh, he suffered some injuries. He suffered some misfortune with Mario Vizquich situation with his 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 ban. Um, but big questions. And I, every year it feels like it's the same. Like you, oh, they should go up. Well, they should have gone up every year, and they don't. So I hope so. I hope I'm wrong. Um, and it will depend on you know, for instance, if they were to finish third, if if they could if they could play a Bochum instead of like a you know a more powerful side, then maybe. But I wouldn't um I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on it put it that way. All right. All right. And one of the quirks this season an experiment is Fortuna Düsseldorf piloting free tickets to matches for fans and they'd like to I mm. think within five years the objective is to have every match be right. be for free. How is that going? How is that being received? Well, it's gone very well. They held a, a test game back in, uh, I think it was October, mm. and uh, Fortuna went three 0 down in the first half, came back to win four three. Can't really ask for better than that when you when you let people in for free. What was interesting about that is Fortuna have a, a very big stadium uh, which holds just over fifty thousand people, and their average attendance is more like twenty eight, twenty nine thousand. For that game, it was full. Which is which is great, which is really really fantastic. Mm-hmm. The idea is that there's a kind of, I suppose, a critical mass reached between being a club who represent this ideal of footballs for everybody. You know, you got to be allowed to come in, and you know, if you, you're never going to fall in love with it if you can't experience it in the proper sense. Um, and so the idea is that that as an initiative attracts enough sponsors who want to align with those values and it becomes this virtuous circle of funding and performance and values and uh, on and on and it goes don't know like i i love the idea i I really hope it succeeds because i think it's it's really important i um i despise 
the way football tickets are priced uh, in England, for instance, I think it's just absolutely disgraceful. Um, I also think that kind of uh, rather than worrying about whether or not to, to form a super league, I think the first step would be to ensure that people can afford to go so that you kind of, I think there are, there are things to explore before you do the breakaway, put it that way. Um, Certainly. And so from that perspective, it would be good because I think it would serve as a really useful precedent, Nicola, like, you know, because if you, if you show it can be done, then you kind of shame other people that are charging like kids 50 quid to go to football matches. Nonsense, right. absolutely nonsense. So we'll see. Um, the the initiative is called Fortuna for All, uh, Fortuna for Alice, um, and it's very worthy. But there are going to be other part. The, the initial pilot scheme is three games long. We've had one of those games, and a couple more are happening at the in the second half of the season. And that timeline you mentioned is yeah, that that's what the the, cl- the club are aiming for. But they they cheerfully accept that they're kind of taking a step into the unknown with it. So we'll see. But it's um. I'm glad someone did it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting. It's also like from a community building um, perspective, it's interesting. Um, as a big Japanese population in Düsseldorf, for instance, I think it's actually um, Europe's biggest um, Japanese population uh, live in the city. Um, Japanese food is very, very good there. Apparently, I haven't been to Düsseldorf, but uh, and imagine. so like you have these things that bring people together, and I think like. Um, football is such an obvious one that if you can make it for everyone genuinely and make it for everyone um, allow everyone to feel like they can go to football without having to make a sacrifice somewhere else in their life like having to cut back on something to afford it then right. uh, all power to them so your fingers crossed for them I, I think it's a, a really worthy thing to do and um, no doubt it's it's not truly it's not necessarily completely altruistic because they hope it will sort of it will power them back to the Bundesliga but um I like the method. Yeah. Not a method they will be applying to the Euros when they host some of those matches, though. Um, and nope. uh, th- that's the that's the last thing I wanted to discuss with you. Uh, probably will have to have you back on uh, closer to date. But just briefly, how's the excitement building up for the Euros? You're there in one of the host cities in Hamburg. I know the current situation with the German team isn't great. So what's uh, what, what's a little vibe check now ahead of Euro 2024? There isn't really one, I think, yet. Mm. Because Germany are not very good. And I think the kind of the main, or well, the main vibe, if there is one, is hopefully we don't get embarrassed. Because right. there's a real existential crisis around not just the, the quality of the national team, but the kind of the relationship between the national team and the native population. Um, people feel... Uh, very disenfranchised from it Um, Mm. and this is not just about Qatar and the social issues and the what the people thought of the way um, the team handled themselves out there on and off the pitch but it's really been building since 2014 and the kind of the commercialization of the national team the various scandals which have afflicted the um, the DFB which is German Football Association Um, there's been a few tax issues there so all of these things have conspired to, to really create a distance. And as a result, you don't, uh, for instance, when I leave my house, I don't see people putting up, you know, preparatory bunting or anything like that. I, right. It's, it still feels a very long way away. I, I, I mean, I, the, the other thing is I, I think a lot of people think, God, uh, hopefully the, the Deutsche Bahn railway network doesn't 
doesn't embarrass us either because it's this terrible <laughs> shape and all these people are going to turn up with this this kind of fabled idea of german efficiency and are oh, gonna, God. you know yeah right so it's it's quite an interesting time for a tournament my wife is german and grew up here and she she always talks about the 2006 world cup as a a time when she first remembers seeing sort of um you know the german flag being waved and people right. embracing national identity and it's 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 kind of an elusive thing for for me probably is for you because we didn't grow up in germany so you don't understand right. really what it is I, I certainly don't um and it was this sort of and a lot of people have said the same thing. There was this moment of catharsis and kind of um, a liberty for patriotism and that kind of stuff. And obviously mm-hmm. they had this wonderful young team that was playing exciting football under Jürgen Klinsmann. And it was a break Very. from all the kind of the, you know, the rubbish, the you know, from 2002 and um, 2000. And, you know, <laughs> so I don't know, but um, it's also the dead of winter. You know, no one's really in the tournament mood just yet. We'll no. see. I and mean, these things tend to kind of gather pace. But I, I think it's a wonderful place to hold a football tournament. I, 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 I love Germany. I think it's, um, its stadiums are so optimized is a really horrible word, but they are. That they're, they're just everywhere you go, there's a brilliant stadium to watch football in. Like Hamburg, mm-hmm. Volkspark is a great place. Like Stuttgart and um, the Westfalen Stadion, and um, you know. Munich and there's just great places everywhere and you know Gelsenkirchen and and, and also because the country is so different there's so many different things to explore and um, no matter where you are stationed as a fan there's something right and I do I've got to sound like I work for the tourist board don't I Um, you know somebody's got to well, I, I, I believe in it. I mean, I, cause yeah. I'm, I'm in the same place. Like, I, I'm still yeah. learning about Germany, and I'm still going around. A lot of the places where I travel to for interviews or football or just general work, I'm going to for the first place, for the first right. time. And so I'm, I'm experiencing what a lot of people will do in the summer. And, and you know, and it's a great thing. It is a great thing. It's a, um, you know, it's not a perfect country in a lot of ways, but um, football-wise, it's got an awful lot to offer. And it's, you know, also, like, Realistically, it's the last of the traditional tournaments because sooner or later, right. you know, every World Cup is going to be staged on the moon or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, gonna, yeah. Five continents plus another planet. Background of a billionaire, you know, right. like it's in his garden <laughs> somewhere, right? Or whatever. And it's you know, different issue. So, you and I, you grow up with this idea that a tournament is held in, in one country. It doesn't have to be, but like that's quite a, that's part of the sort of the tournament vibe i think and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and um it's great to, to live in a high city of course and it's super convenient for me but um yeah i can't wait and uh, hopefully germany starts to starts to gather some enthusiasm for it as well yeah i mean great memories like you said of uh, of 2006 uh, in terms of the great tournament the great, great tournament, tournament uh all around on the pitch off the pitch like just just brilliant so i'm happy it's going back to germany as you said like also just great stadiums great cities uh to to visit for for any of our listeners that would be uh would be so inclined i live in copenhagen myself so we're uh we're trying to make it uh across yeah. you were here yeah, recently for the derby. yeah yeah, I did. I did uh, FCK against Bromby. It was, uh, I mean, almost had to sell a kidney to spend three days in Copenhagen. It's so expensive. But other than yeah, that, we're an amazing that again. place. It's, um, yeah, yeah I, 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 I love the people I met from both sides of that divide. And, and uh, I love I the experience of being there. It's just a beautiful place, Copenhagen. 
Um, that's great and but very easy very easy train line to get down here so you've got no excuse for your uh, exactly yeah. exactly at least you know uh, I'll let you know if uh, if we're in Hamburg or uh uh, 100%. Or not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Seb, uh, really, we've been on a tour de force here covering uh, a lot of uh, of German Bundesliga, also Zweite Bundesliga and the Euros. Um, just want to let the listeners know where they can find you. Well, uh, my written work is all on The Athletic, um, which uh, you can find on their website. I'm at SebSB on Twitter. And I'm also, uh, I'm head of the head of t5 football's illustrated channel on youtube so you can see our kind of illustrated content there and our bits and pieces and um if you enjoy some of the bits we do around the european championships and uh as we head into the into 2020 yes absolutely some brilliant content up there seb stafford bloor thanks for stopping by thanks for having me Well, listeners, there you have it. That was our interview with Seb Stafford Bloor. If that doesn't get you to watch a bit more Bundesliga, then I don't know what will. I really enjoyed making this with him, diving into all the narratives surrounding the football. As always, for more of this content, just write us if you have any ideas, lostinpostulation at gmail.com or by searching Lost in Postulation on any social media of your choice, including Instagram. We're going to come back with more content like this, as mentioned. But for now, I bid you farewell. I'm Nicola Volpi. This was Hussman FC, an LIP production. Until next time, listeners.